Please note this episode contains content that some listeners may find upsetting. This week we're delighted to welcome Sir Marcus Setchell, KCVO, a leading obstetrician and gynaecologist and the former surgeon gynaecologist to Her Majesty the Queen and the Royal Household. Marcus attended Lady Louise Windsor at Frimley Park Hospital, the first royal child to be delivered at an NHS hospital. And in July 2013, he led the team at the birth of Prince George of Cambridge at the Lindo Wing of St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. Since retiring, Sir Marcus has been an important advocate for women's health charities and the restoration of the Great Hall at St Bart's Hospital. He was guest of honour at Felsted's 450th anniversary speech day and is also a former president of the Old Felstedian Society. Welcome to this week's Felsted Talks podcast. And Marcus, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be a student at Felsted and what your time was like? Um, well, I didn't make the position, that's for sure. <laughs> but um, I went to a prep school in Suffolk, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now, now a very nice uh, hotel, luxury boutique hotel and restaurant, I'm told. And I think I do remember quite vividly my father saying he was interested in Felsted School because a good friend of his had been there and was killed in the war. Uh, And I can't just recall his name now, but that seemed to be the the main connection with Felsted School. And then I, I, well, my older brother, I guess, probably got taken by my parents to look around. I don't actually remember coming on a look round before or anything like that but I got a place offered and I was asked that the place shouldn't begin till the January's term because my birthday was in early October and I would have only been 12 when I started rather than 13 so I didn't arrive until sort of a third of the way through the school year. But that was made even more extraordinary because just before Christmas of the preceding year, I went into Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge to have a very routine tonsils and adenoid operation. And while I was in the ENT ward, I developed acute appendicitis And I certainly learned that an ENT ward is not the safest place to develop anything below your head and neck uh, because they just told me, we're not going to let you go home because you've got a temperature. Are you sure you're feeling all right? And in the end, I said, well, actually, I've got a bit of a tummy ache. And and I hadn't said anything about it because I wanted to get home for Christmas. (laughs) But in the end, so then they told me I wasn't going to be sent home because of this. And after 24 hours of various different surgical teams coming to see me, they decided to operate. And I then, because it had been a bit neglected, had a very stormy post-operative recovery and spent six weeks in hospital. So the reason for that anecdote is that I then joined halfway through the term. And that was quite a disadvantage because... 
the other classmates had all, you know, got their friends and so on. And there was this rather frightened little boy being somewhat laughed at. I spoke very slowly in a very squeaky voice, and they used to imitate my voice. So I sort of recovered from that. So it sounds as though boarding school would have been quite a robust environment at that time. Yes, it was certainly less cosy. The prep school I went to from the age of eight was a very cosy small place. And I think, you know, Felsted was a big place. And it took me a little while to adjust to. Yeah. And and I did so. I, I can't remember what my... My, I, I, I definitely didn't want to show fear or uh, any ill effects from this slight teasing and so on. And then gradually during my school career, I you know, gained confidence and at a very early stage took an interest in drama. And I'm sure that was all about to be another persona, <laughs> all that sort of thing. But I, I, I was very grateful for that because I think having you know, learned to be an actor is quite useful in life generally, particularly yeah. in medicine where you sometimes have to be an actor to demonstrate and empathise with patients that, who you perhaps don't feel <laughs> are very genuine in their complaints and so on. Yes, yes. And uh, I mean, we, we talk a lot now about uh, developing character as, as being part of education. And I, I just wonder if there was a particular teacher who had a had a particular influence on your development. I think, yes, I think, well, I think Alan Ronaldson was because he was interested in acting as well. And then much later on, when it came to the time to leave school, I had the, my curious birthday meant that I took A-levels when I was 16 going on 17. And... I had a place at Cambridge, but they didn't want me to start for another year because of, of, of my being... Actually, I went for an interview at King's where they turned me down saying, you're too young, dear boy, you're too young. <laughs> but Keyes did take me, for the, but for a year delayed. So, um, and, that, and I, the school didn't know what to do with me. There was no such thing as gap years, and my parents certainly didn't know what to do with me. So the school said, well, why don't he, doesn't he stay on and do... Uh, you've had, had a very rigid scientific sort of um, background and do some arts and languages. So I stayed on and did art with Trevor Goodman and German with Mike Hawthorne as a one-to-one pupil. <laughs> which was very strange, really. But I enjoyed them both. But what I did find is that I missed my friends because my friends had all gone after a, a term of doing... But um, I think probably Trevor Goodman, particularly because he was very broadly interested and a, a very inspiring teacher because I was hopeless at art <laughs> but he made me feel I wasn't all together and I think he got me doing pottery in the end <laughs> um, so I, I think uh, and I think the, the housemaster actually had quite an influence and, and then particularly Tony Bueller who was assistant housemaster of Windsor's but also was in charge of tennis and I was allowed to play tennis 
but you weren't allowed to do, to drop cricket until you were 16. But I was so bad at cricket and so bored by it, although I was a wicketkeeper, and one day I was caught chewing gum as wicketkeeper, just in a, in a practice game. It wasn't in a school match or anything. And they said, we don't want you playing cricket anymore, whoever the cricket master was. Yes. So I said, well, can I do tennis? And so they let me do tennis at a younger age, uh, than was normally allowed, <laughs> so there was a flexibility that even then. Yes, well, that's that's good. And then, um, and then after that, it was off off to Cambridge to study medicine. You weren't put off by your experience uh, as a twelve-year-old with with appendicitis. Well, no, I think the answer is that I got rather interested in hospitals, and it wasn't so much the science of it, but the routines and the the culture and the. I can remember being transfixed by the beautiful ward sister uh, on the ward rounds and it is sort of formality of the ward round which is somewhat gone nowadays but it was a sort of you know very formal traipse round the ward to each bed with about 10 people and I think that's probably got me interested. And when you were when you were starting out in medicine um, is there anything you wish you'd known then that you know now and is, is there any advice that you would give to a, a, a current student who is thinking about medicine? Well I think current students thinking about medicine do actually probably have more opportunities to find out what it's about by getting put in touch with mentors or OF doctors who encourage them and give them a bit of insight. But I, I'm not sure there was... Oh, well, I did... That's right. I did go and took a, a, a holiday job as a part-time... Well, no, as a full-time hospital porter in the local hospital, which was Huntingdon Hospital. And it was extremely medial. In fact, having gone for an interview to get this job, they warned me that it was very menial and actually, and they paid me. I mean, it wasn't work experience. <laughs> and I, I remember when I started in the first day, they actually couldn't think of what to give me to do. So they said, there's a lot of wall washing once doing in the bathrooms. So I spent the first several days washing walls in the bathrooms. And then one of the other porters, I think a theatre porter, one day said, shall I try and get you into theatre? And he did did that and got me into theatre. And then I did sort of more general portraying yes. jobs. But I guess I, I got a feel for the buzz of the hospital and it wasn't so much, you know, what the illnesses or disorders were as, yes, this is a nice sort of atmosphere to work in. Yes, and that, that um, nowadays to follow medicine, you have to do so much work experience and and so on. But I, I, I guess that's important so that people know that it is something that they can commit to because the, the training is long and, and expensive to provide. So if you, you need to be sure that it's the right people who are going into the into the courses. Sure. And then I, I should mention, because I, I after the first term of, of my art and German, when I missed all my friends, I actually, I, and, and I'm quite surprised looking back because I wasn't a very full of initiative, I don't think, but I decided that I wanted to leave school and go out into the big wide world <laughs> doing something else. And I, I, I'd spent a lot of my school holidays 
working on my father's farm, which I enjoyed around the age of 11. But when I was a teenager, I somewhat rebelled and thought there was more interesting thing to do than sitting on a plough, ploughing up a field hour after hour after hour. So I answered an advertisement in the Times personal column for a, a job that said students wanted to work in North Country Inn. So I am completely, you know, without consulting my parents, I just told them I was applying and got this job in a very nice little village on the edge of the Dales called Barbon. And it was a huge life experience <laughs> when I learned anything I've ever known about wine. <laughs> I learned about making customers happy because you've got nice big tips then. <laughs> So I, you know, I learned a bit of charm, I suppose, <laughs> without yes. knowing that's what it was. But, uh, and I had just a really very interesting time there. Yes. Uh, before, so, and I'm sure that was well, uh, well, time well spent before going up to Cambridge. Yeah, I, well, I remember my, my mother telling me she did her um, teacher training up in North Yorkshire. She didn't go on to become a teacher, but she, she went up to a, a very rural school in North Yorkshire and she said it was a, it was an incredible education in all sorts of ways because she she came from uh, from a family in Surrey and learning the dialect was a job in itself never mind uh, actually learning how to teach these children so i think there's a there's a lot to be cha- a lot to be said for going out of your comfort zone yes um, and it was tough we got up at 6 o'clock in the morning that it had about seven bedrooms and you, you okay. served early morning tea to those who'd ordered it then you came downstairs, and I you know I learned a lot of domestic stuff. Yes. I, I know how to treat a mahogany table, and you first of all wipe all the green grease off with a wash leather in hot water with two tablespoonfuls of vinegar, and then you polish it. <laughs> so all of those sort of skills were were embedded as well. And sometimes working in the bar and pulling a pint and all that sort of yeah. thing. And uh, I mean, all, all jobs bring an element of pressure, but uh, you've been involved in a number of high profile deliveries and nothing more so, I would have thought, than the future King of England, uh, the delivery of Prince George. How do you cope with that pressure on yourself from the media, the, 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 whole, the whole thing going on? Uh, around that? Well, um, by the time Prince George was born, I'd had 24 years experience of looking after royal families, or, and not only ours, but the Middle East and, and all sorts of and presidents' wives and so on. So I think I'd, I'd got a sort of mindset that, uh, and I remember particularly, I remember the first royal person I operated on, I said to myself, once the patient was on the operating table, this is just another patient. Mm -hmm. All the same, she'll be feeling the same anxieties as all other patients, and just keep remembering that. And I think that's probably what kept me keep a cool head. Yes, yes. And of course, at Falstead, we were we were very fortunate to be visited by the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh to mark the 450th anniversary. I, I remember at the time how impressed we all were by their energy and their attention to detail, their interest in young people's education. Uh, and I remember the Queen sitting at lunch and 
knowing something about everybody at the table so that she could initiate conversation, which I thought was an, an incredible recall, an incredible attention to detail. Certainly when they were here at the school, that their their interactions with people were were all about putting other people at ease, which I thought was uh, was was really important for the day to be a success. And lots of people have great memories from that day as a result of that, I think. Yeah. And at Felsted, we also talk about growth mindset and the importance of actually making mistakes. Clearly, in the in the medical profession, there there are, there are mistakes made, and and they can be really difficult to to deal with. I wonder if there's there are any mistakes you've made along the way that you've used to to learn from to improve as you go forward. Um, that's a very good question and a very important one. When I was sort of as, as a medical student and as a junior doctor, people would describe something that went wrong as a complication, which sort of removed them from the responsibility of it. And, and I can even remember as a junior doctor, not necessarily doing anything wrong, but the outcome was a, a baby that was a stillborn baby. And the consultant spent time telling me that this wasn't in any way my fault whatsoever. You know? And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that happens. And, and I can felt at the time that wasn't what you should be doing. You should be asking me in more detail exactly what happened and so on. I certainly recognised early on that reviewing cases, patients, treatments that had gone wrong was an important thing to do. And subsequently, way, way on in my career, I seem to have got a reputation for making patients who were making complaints and feeling very disgruntled and wanting to go to lawyers, you know, that's the next thing I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I was medical director of Homerton Hospital and I was asked to review all patient complaints. And I would, if, and if it was one where the patient wanted to meet somebody, because oh, there was a great reluctance of, of doctors to actually engage with people making complaints. And I used to put aside two-hour slot. And if you really sat and listened, communicated, uh, I could many times they'd end up shaking your hand and saying, thank you, doctor, it's the first time I've understood what and they weren't pe- people from my own discipline they weren't obstetrician of patients with um, yes. you know uh, necessarily uh, um, complaints from my specialty so I would do it for people who'd been in a medical ward I remember one very tragic case where a woman who was a known epileptic when was on the ward was sort of labelled as as fit for self-care and went and had a bath in the bathroom and the bath water was scalding hot and she couldn't get out uh, and she died. Uh, And the hospital hadn't addressed that at all. But even that, once I'd addressed it, they didn't take legal action. Mm-hmm. And I think people are much better now about, I mean, it's a much more sort of high profile thing in, in hospitals and medical care 
to be sensitive about investigation of cases uh, and, uh, and which some of which will actually be due to mistakes or errors yes yeah no i mean that's that's uh that's a very hard-hitting story to to hear and i, I mean i think it, it probably applies in all walks of life that uh when when there is a complaint you know some, something something may have gone wrong it may be somebody's fault it may not be but if, if something's gone wrong for someone in, in a school as well the worst thing is not to hear that the best thing is to hear it and to see what whether you can make it better for them and if not for them whether you can make it better for other people going forward so i i believe entirely in a, in a culture where people who are unhappy with something come forward and, and will tell you rather than complaining to somebody else you, you want to know yeah a cover-up is never worthwhile no agreed agreed and um, one other aspect that we've uh, we've we've really tried to embed in the culture at the school is for students to try to make a difference to those around them positive difference either while they're at school but hopefully also when they go beyond school i mean obviously working as a working in the medical profession you're you're doing that all the time but I, I know you, you've now taken on a role as uh, honorary president of the Wellbeing of Women charity, uh, and I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit of, about the work of the charity and what inspired you to do that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've been involved with that charity uh, during my working career because obstetricians and gynaecologists were in, encouraged to take an interest, and indeed most of the consultants in, in obstetrics and gynaecology, certainly in London and anywhere near, became serious contributors to well-being of women. And well-being of women basically funds research into improved treatment of all aspects of women's health and indeed has broadened that very considerably uh, it was very much focused on pregnancy when it was first founded. In fact, it was called something to do with babies until in its first 15, 20 years uh, of life as a charity. But then it, it expanded to deal with you know, everyday problems, the menopause, you know, non-life-threatening, but quality of life, uh, and, and even how women are not given support in the working place uh, for what are perceived by us males as as, as minor conditions. Um, so I, 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 I'd been involved with it a long time. And when I retired, I think um, you're slightly addicted to like, to want, have a need for wanting to be helpful in some way to, to people and, and health and so on. So uh, I was very happy to expand my role there. I'm just having a cup of coffee made. Oh, very <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's grown as a charity. Yes. Uh, uh, it's, not, it's not a massively big charity. It's not like Save the Children. Or, um, but it, but it, it spends about three million a year on research grants, which are... The applications are dealt with in a very proper, reviewed by uh, an independent team of research experts who say, yes, this is something that could go somewhere. 
Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and I've enjoyed doing that very much. Excellent. And and uh, what are you enjoying doing most at the moment? I, I know you're still playing tennis, for example. I was playing tennis yesterday. That picture behind shows hawk sailing boats in a race. I think I appear to be in the winning boat, but it's the photographic angle, I think, we were <laughs> coming in at third. But anyway, we have an annual tennis match between the sailors who sail in hawks and the sailors who sail in a boat called a cockle. Um, so I was doing that yesterday. And a couple of weeks ago, I was playing in the Cromer annual tennis tournament, which used to be a sort of quite prestigious national tournament. Well, it still is national, but it's not so so prestigious. And I played in the over 65s, although I like playing in over 75 tournaments. <laughs> uh, and we uh, lost in the semi-final. Okay, okay. But I have to tell you that the semi-final was the first round because only four couples <laughs> entered into it. Ah, right, it. okay. <laughs> Are there any aspirations that you, you still have that you, you're working on at the moment you need to fulfil? Well, my, my, by far and away, the most occupying charity that I'm working with now is for Bart's heritage, um, because about 10 years ago, a group of us recognised that the heritage buildings and, and, and art collections of Bart's were in a state of decline. Uh, and that was because the National Health Service couldn't really spend money on historic non-clinical buildings. And so this great hall in its lovely... James Gibbs design building uh, had really had almost no maintenance done at all and, and was leaking and all sorts of things. And so we formed a friends of the Great Hall to try and draw attention to it and to try and persuade the National Health Service to lease it out to a heritage trust. And this they agreed to after several years of quite high pressure and even lawyers and so on and during the course of it we had to present the case of of what was needed to be done and how much it might cost uh, and we now have a very effective heritage trust with a brilliant chief executive called Will Palin who's father happens to be Michael Palin but Will doesn't need that attribute <laughs> but it was a rather nice coincidence that the f first week Will came to work for us he, his father had a heart operation at Barks and said I want to go really public over this and so there were full page articles of, of Michael Palin inspecting the great hall three days after his heart surgery and so on. But it's, it's really now going at pace very well and, and a much more detailed surveys have been done because we've been very held up in the fundraising aspect by COVID. Yes. But we're almost certainly going to get a major lottery fund grant in, a, in, in September and it's almost certainly going to happen. And that will act as a sort of um, a stamp of approval for other people to, to know, foundations and trusts 
to give major donations. And we have already had some very major donations which have enabled us to employ you know, a really full team of experts to do this project. And, then, and it's also very fortuitous that 11.23 is the 900th anniversary of Barts Hospital's foundation. And we're, we're planning huge numbers of events to celebrate that but also to use as a platform for fundraising for the heritage. I mean, it's the oldest hospital in Europe to be on the same site since its foundation. And it's all going very well. The very best wishes for that. It's, uh, I, I know the old Felstadians had a, had a lovely dinner there a few years ago and uh, wish, you, wish you every success with, with that. I'm sure, I'm sure it will go well. One rather sweet, nice thing is... Sir Peter Beale, who I remember came to yes. that dinner, yes. as you probably know, his son is Simon Russell Beale, actor, very much out of the blue. Uh, he's become a member of the patron circle of uh, Bart's heritage. So it is a, a really rather sweet coincidence. I don't know whether his father knows that he's done it, but it attracts other people to take an interest when you have... Yes, def- definitely. Mr. and Mrs. Blair are very interested because their first two children were born at Barts. Ah, okay, okay, yes. So we've yeah. got a lot, and, and of course then, finally this year, after quite a lot of time trying to bring this about, the Prince of Wales has become patron of the fundraising appeal until, so he, he's basically patron, uh, royal patron of Barts Heritage until the restoration is complete Gosh, and, and that's, that's already good... made a big difference yes yes oh well no the, ver- the very best wishes for that and uh, thank you so much for your time today and for, and for sharing so many stories from your time at Felsted and beyond it's uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the summer thank you very much and thank you too um, I mean I've greatly enjoyed being president of the society it was a, a really really enjoyable experience and one of those things again is that helped retirement to have a a point (laughs) so that was marcus setchell talking to headmaster chris townsend a great conversation now the next episode of this podcast channel is going to be out soon so whether you're listening on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever that might be make sure you click the option to follow or subscribe to this podcast it just means that when the next episode comes out you'll get a small notification so that you know that it's there But until then, thank you for listening to this episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.